Hey, this is Beth. And this is Jeff. And this is your Enneagram Coach, the podcast, where we're here to help you to understand yourself with astonishing clarity so that you can break free from self-condemnation, fear, and shame by knowing and experiencing the unconditional love, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ. Today, we're continuing our series on the Enneagram and trauma. We're excited to welcome author and counselor Andy Kobler to the show. She's a licensed counselor, author, and speaker, and she's passionate about the integration of faith and psychology. As a survivor of trauma herself, Andi brings hard-won knowledge about the work of change, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God with us in our pain. Andy's new book, Try Softer, shows us how God designed our bodies and minds to work together to process our stories and work through obstacles. I can't wait to talk with her more about this process and how it relates to our Enneagram types. Here's our conversation with Andy. Well, Andy, we are so grateful uh, to be here with you and to discuss um, not only your story, but also uh, how that's led to your book, Try Softer. Um, We're spending a few episodes talking about how the Enneagram informs uh, our understanding of trauma and our experiences of trauma. And whenever our team began talking about the subject, I said, hey, we've got to get Andy on here because uh, in my circles, Try Softer has been such a helpful book um and for various multiple reasons but um my my friends were even envious of being able to spend some time with you and uh pick your brain on some of your thoughts but uh why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um what's your enneagram type what is it you do tell us about your family where you live yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, for having me. It, it really, it's an honor and uh, it's good to be with you. But yeah, so I am a licensed professional counselor in Castle Rock, Colorado, and I have been doing this work, gosh, it's been about 12 years, I think. Um, and so, you know, part of my journey when I was younger, I was I've always had this sense that I I wanted to help people when I was younger. um, I thought that was going to be through being a lawyer, which is really random right now. I I look back and I'm like, (laughs) I'm really glad that didn't work out. But um, so I went to Denver seminary for my training um, as a, as a mental health therapist. And, you know, my journey has, has kind of unfolded in such a way that, um, over time, I, I've just become more and more curious and interested in trauma. And really that's led me to understanding the nervous system and understanding our bodies and what it means to, I think for me, really, it comes down, what does it look like to be fully human? Um, I think if we look at the other side of the spectrum of trauma, it's, it's, you know, the opposite of being fragmented is being able to be fully integrated and alive. And I think, you know, for me, that's such a point of integration with faith. Um, I think that's what God calls us to is to, is to come alive. Um, and so this is, this has kind of been my journey, partly because I also am a survivor of trauma. Um, and so I, it just, it's become just a passion. I, you know, I've, I've written Softer, um, and you know, the other part of my life, which absolutely is such a big part of my passion to 
know what it looks like to really be fully alive is that I'm a mom. Um, I have two kiddos, Jude and Matthias. Yeah, they're they're so sweet. Um, Jude and Matia. And then I'm married to Brendan. We've been married for, gosh, about 13 years. Mm, Um, And so, yeah, I have a private practice and um, I am a type four on the Enneagram. And I was telling you guys, I just found out kind of in the last couple of months that I'm actually a, a counter type. I'm the self-preservation Enneagram four, which is, which has been really interesting and a helpful uh, piece of information. Yes. Yeah. And for those that are listening that may not know what that is, uh, that's the instinctual subtypes. You know, are mm-hmm. you, do you lead with self-preservation, social or one-to-one instinct? And that's a whole nother thing, but you yeah. can look it up <laughs> or read Beatrice Chestnut's book, uh, The Complete Enneagram to understand mm-hmm. that part. But again, it brings a lot of clarity because uh, like you said, you're a four, but it doesn't always manifest the same way as other fours. And why is that? And so she mm-hmm. goes into great detail. So that's an excellent book for those that are interested in um, these instinctual subtypes. Uh, curious, how did you discover the Enneagram and uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's been about five years. And, um, you know, I had begun to kind of hear about it in just different friend circles. And, um, I started listening to, um, Ian Crown's podcast mm-hmm. at one point. And, um, and I, for one of the things that was interesting and it makes more sense now is that I, for a while thought I was an Enneagram one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, with the, with the counter for, which I've kind of just begun to unpack a little bit more in the last couple months, what I see now is that what I saw in the one was Mm -hmm. this sense of, I think a rigidity, a little bit, a little Mm -hmm. bit of a sense of like, this is what I have to do to like make things work. Well, and also self-preservation fours, you know, they're kind of, they're stoic with their emotions where they're, they have all of those emotions inside, but they may not reveal them. They don't necessarily always wear them on their sleeve. Like what Mm -hmm. maybe people might be imagining or stereotyping a four to be like. Um, But also fours are very much perfectionist too. But well, in fact, we can all be perfectionists. We're just going to do it our own way. But forced perfectionism is different than the one. The one is looking for perfection in what is right, wrong, procedural, ethics, morals, that kind of. Um, But fours, they want perfection in their ideals. Mm -hmm. So they have this ideal of what things should be like. Um, It could be aesthetics, design, creativity, emotions, depth, relationships. There's this ideal Uh that they're longing to bring back to its wholeness. Mm. And of course, we're on the side of heaven, so it's fragmented. And so fours, especially the counter type that you were saying, the self-preservation for, can feel and think, well, maybe I'm a one because they think they're a perfectionist, which it could be. It's just a perfectionism in a different area. Does that feel right? Yeah, no, I definitely resonate with that. Um, cause I, that, cause I had this sense for a while, I even called myself a recovering perfectionist, but then I would look at the ones and I'm like, Oh, just, that's just not it. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I was like, that's just not it. Um, and I think 
Yeah. It's just been fascinating. Like I am a profoundly deep feeler. I'm a, I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm, um, you know, I, I am all of those things and looking back, um, I see now that I was pretty stoic as a child. Um, like not in the way, like, like all emotions, but essentially the feedback that I've now gotten and I see differently as an adult is that when I was in pain, people didn't know I was in pain. When I was not doing well, you didn't know I wasn't doing well. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I've, one of the things, cause I've, I've listened, um, and, and learned a little bit from Beatrice Chestnut as well on this. She's had some great insight and sort of that idea that taking that longing and channeling it into almost like a tenacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is so true for me. Um, right. it's like, I took my childhood trauma <laughs> and I said, I'm going to channel this into like, I played basketball all through high school and college. I, um, ended up being the highest leading scorer of all time in my basketball, like of my high school. Like I just had a tenacity. Um, and I think there's a lot, you know, people could put a lot of different numbers when you think, when they think that, but it's taken all these layers of peeling. Like what's that really been about? What, why has it never been okay for me to be not so much even vulnerable, but I think I have begun to frame it that I didn't feel safe enough mm. to be able to share um, my experience, my, my deepest mm-hmm. hurt, my, mm-hmm. my sense of will there be anyone there mm. to catch me? Mm-hmm if I let you see how deeply this has affected me yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, and that makes sense. You know, I, in, in my story, in my life, in my family system, um, it makes a lot of sense that I would sure. have felt that way because the reality was, um, I didn't have the amount of support needed. And so, you know, what I've come to learn is that that's how my body learned to survive that. I I assessed that situation as this is, this is how I can get through. Um, And so I've, I've learned to really honor that younger me Mm -hmm. did not feel safe enough to be seen. Sure. And that the only way I felt safe enough to be seen was to be the strong one, to Mm -hmm. be the one who was like, nothing hurts me. I'm okay. You know, even though internally I was in a lot of pain. We'll be back after a quick break. Moms, it's here. Registration is open for Enneagram for Moms cohort. Yes, From May 6th to May 13th, you can grab your spot to be in one of the cohorts with moms of the same Enneagram type, plus with a certified Enneagram coach leading the way. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing to be with like-minded moms who really understand what it's like to be on your journey as a mom from your type? Yes, it will feel so validating, reassuring, affirming, encouraging. You don't have to mom alone anymore. Go to yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts to grab your spot today because there's only 25 spots available for each cohort. 
Now we have a cohort for all nine types in the daytime and one in the evening. But when the spots are filled up, they're gone. So grab your spot today at yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts. The groups start the week of June 10th and go until the week of July 29th. There are 90 minute sessions and there's eight of them. Plus you'll get a free Facebook group community where you can continue the conversation with one another. Join today. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, in light of uh, your experiences, um, what or at what point did you start to recognize that some of your experiences are now leading you to the desire to become a therapist? Mm. Yeah. So when I. Gosh, when I, when I finished college, um, my, when I finished my undergrad, um, you know, I, I essentially was finishing my, my basketball career. I'd been playing basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I say basketball and Jesus <laughs> kind of say <same. laughs> <laughs> like, like those were the things that gave me anchors through just mm-hmm. really tumult- a tumultuous childhood. Um, and not to say that there weren't people that loved me, but those were things that they connected me with a sense of my true self that I've now come to learn Mm -hmm. even more deeply Mm -hmm. in in my adulthood. Um, And so when I was finishing college, uh, I was, I no longer had basketball, not in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I actually was engaged to be married to, to a different man than Brendan. And essentially a lot of things fell apart at once. Um, My parents' Hmm. marriage, uh, was in, was in shambles. And there had been a lot of, uh, tumultuous and and abusive dynamics in the marriage, but it it had sort of reached a climax. Um, so my basketball career ended and then, um, I also called off an engagement Mm -hmm. all within about six months of each other. Hmm. And basically, you know, I look back and it was a tremendously painful time, but God, absolutely met me in that time. Like I, it's looking back, I still almost can't even believe this, but essentially I called off this engagement and I was like, okay. And I was graduated from college. I had all these things not going the way I thought they were going to go. You know, I'd always been so strong and now it was like, I got nothing. (laughs) And so I decided to visit a friend out in Colorado, really just randomly. And because I was like, what am I going to do with my life? (laughs) And while I was here, I just experienced this profound sense of peace. Like I, I, for me, probably one of those times in my life where I could say wasn't an audible voice of God, but it was like, I just knew that I knew that I knew like, this is where I was supposed to be. Right. And so it was during that time that I had, an, I had met um, a woman who would later become my mentor and she, she had gone to Denver seminary. Um, and just, uh, you know, my, my sister actually was starting to train to, to look at being a therapist and she's seven years older than me. And so a part of me was like, I don't want to be the same thing as my sister. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately I just began to get curious and it was like, it was a a confluence of me beginning to see how much work and how much healing work I had ahead of me and Mm. a desire to integrate that with my faith. Um, and a, and a belief that 
I believe, you know, I, I'm so grateful for prayer. I'm so grateful for faith communities, but also this recognition that we're so complex and that we can experience healing in lots of different venues. And so that really, that was the, that was the catalyst and the turning point. I, the next year after that, I ended up um, enrolling at Denver Seminary. Wow. So coming out of this moment, you decide to be a therapist and then now you've published a book. I mean, it's kind of your mark on your story, Mm. the culmination of your training, working with people. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your book, Try Softer. Yeah. Well, I often say that Try Softer is sort of the work of my life in the Mm -hmm. sense that I don't think I'll ever graduate from Try Softer. Um, Yeah. And I say that without any shame or condemnation. Um, Like it's not, I think so often we think of things like they're a finish line, like, Ooh, got it. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, try, try softer is sort of um, the phrase I use concurrently with that is learning to pay compassionate attention to our experiences and to my experiences. And so for me, Try Softer is really born out of um, what I needed really my Mm -hmm. whole life. (laughs) Um, But particularly that story I just told you about when I, when everything sort of began to fall apart and the things like basketball and this sort of sense of like, I'm strong enough. Like I just like get on my back. <laughs> um, we can do this, you know, like this is what I wish that I'd had then. Yes. Right. Um, and so it's this journey for me of, it begins with a story, uh, from my counseling supervisor who was just this really gentle man, um, who is this gentle man. And he, you know, I was a lot of times therapists when we're, um, in training, we are under supervision of a Mm -hmm. more experienced therapist. And so I was, had probably been a therapist out of school for like one or two years at that point. And, And the thing that I didn't understand then was I couldn't white knuckle my way into being a good Mm -hmm. therapist. I couldn't Mm -hmm. white knuckle my way into healing. Like I had to, Mm -hmm. I had to live into it Mm -hmm. for me to offer my clients a space to heal. Not that I wasn't doing healing work. I was, but it was just this invitation that he said to me one day, he said, Andy, you're doing such a great job and I'm so proud of you, but what would it be like instead of trying so hard and just sort of feeling like you have to just sort of be responsible and in charge of everything, what would it be like for you to try softer? Hmm. And so over time, this um, book, I laugh because it sort of was like herding cats when I was writing it. Um, (laughs) Definitely sums it up. That's how I feel all the time. (laughs) Thank you for putting a word to it. Yeah. I mean, it was like I had all these ideas and I was trying to figure out like, how do I 
how do I talk about this journey? That's not just one thing. Like a lot of times in therapeutic circles, you know, people might talk about, oh, it's cognitive behavioral, cognitive behavioral, or it's internal family systems, or it's um, attachment, or, you know, there's, there's all these theories, which are great, but I'm like, oh, but for me, I've used like eight theories <laughs> and how do I talk about this? And so that phrase try softer was the thing. And then compassionate attention became this sort of theme of all of it, of yeah. how do we learn to be with ourselves in the journey mm -hmm. and that journey, especially for folks who had complex trauma, which is part of my story, um, that it's not just a single event. It's, yeah. there have been numerous, numerous experiences, some that I don't even remember, some that only my body has remembered, um, that the, the lens that I bring mm -hmm. with is, is that learning to pay compassionate attention so that my body can metabolize the trauma Sure. So that it becomes no longer so fragmented um, mm -hmm. and more available and a part of the um, tapestry that I have mm -hmm. access to as yeah. I continue to heal. As I read in your book, the antithesis of trying softer and giving compassion and attention is that we've been, I think you're right, that we've been socialized, parented, and we're wired to over-function that we don't recognize when our bodies are actually stressed and traumatized and exhausted until the consequences are dire. Uh, can you expound on that a bit about uh, what are just some signs like that mm. we're over-functioning in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the, the things that I almost always talk about with this, because I love how tangible it is. So pardon me while I just geek out for just like a moment. <laughs> um, but there's, you know, one of the things I talk about in Trisofter alongside this is the concept. Um, it's originally from Dan Siegel and Stephen Porges, uh, but the concept of our window of tolerance and, mm -hmm. and our window of tolerance is just that range of arousal in which we can feel our feelings or our experiences, our emotions, our sensations, and we can tolerate it. But when our body detects that what we're experiencing might be a threat and that threat can be real or perceived. Um, and there's lots of nuance to that, that I won't unpack totally here, but essentially if, you know, let's say, you know, for someone who's grown up with like a really critical parent and they, you know, they're at their job and their boss gives them sort of an expression that makes them think like, wow, they're really unhappy with me. That has that potential to actually activate in our bodies, a sense of threat. And, mm -hmm. and what can happen is that once that, once that begins, we go into either, um, hyper arousal. So that's fight, flight, or fawn. Or mm -hmm. if our body says, Ooh, that's not going to help. We actually may go down into hypo arousal, which is like a dissociative, um, or a freeze. Yes. And so the way this relates to what your this question is that, 
many of us have been parented or, or we've been in systems or churches or cultures where this is, you know, we are, we are sort of taught that this is first of all, like, this is how it's, what it means to be human. Like maybe, um, in order to belong, like you can't have feelings or Mm -hmm. you need to create this amount, or you need to produce this amount, or you need to, um, always please people. Otherwise the consequences are that like, maybe it's that you don't belong. Maybe it's that you'll be shamed. You know, there's lots of different ways that happens. And so when I say like that, we've been socialized and parented, essentially our, what I'm meaning there is that our nervous systems have been shaped in such a way that we mm-hmm. come to say, Oh, I better white knuckle it. And, and a lot of this is just even unconscious, but our body's like, if I don't get that done, what will happen? What will that mean? You know? And so I think this is where it's, it's fascinating because this mm-hmm. is happening both on there's a, there's a conscious level but oftentimes this is happening a long time at an unconscious sure. level before we even realize like we're, we're pushing so hard. Yeah. And so that's where that, that sense of like, we don't even realize how exhausted we are. We yes. don't even know that we're fried until like we can't get out of bed, you know, yeah. or like, it's like, I don't have access to my emotions and I don't, I don't know why. What I, what I like about this is that it, it holds space for the whole spectrum. Sure. Sometimes yes. for those who've never even heard this concept, sometimes we just begin to notice. We just mm-hmm. begin to notice like, oh, when my friend or my husband or wife or pastor or boss says something to me and my body automatically tenses up and I feel like I have to push really hard and I can't say no. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like that makes me a little bit curious what that might be about. Sure. Well, we find that a lot uh, in Enneagram coaching mm-hmm. is that oftentimes the Enneagram gets vocabulary to how we are responding to certain bodily sensations or patterns of self-talk, and we have an immediate response to them. Like, it's just, that's just what we do, and we don't realize there are choices. We don't realize that that's a, a way of coping with the world. And so the Enneagram is just gently bringing attention to it so that you can now give attention to it and decide, okay, where is this coming from? Why does this pattern exist? How is it hindering uh, or helping my relationships? Um, but at least you've brought it into the light to be able to give attention to it. Yeah. Well, you, you also mentioned that we're not supposed to just tolerate or endure our life and family and relationships, body and our career, but we're to find ways to actually love and honor them. Uh, how we, so I'd love for you to comment on that. And then I also wanted to ask Beth on how the Enneagram helps us with this as well about looking for ways, not just to presume upon our story in our life, but learning to love and honor the, mm-hmm. our stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love that question. And I think 
as I, as I think about it, one of the things I just want to acknowledge is that people may be on different parts of the spectrum as they hear this. Um, I know for me, sometimes when I work with folks who've experienced severe trauma, the idea of loving themselves feels like, whew, like, I don't know, like what, like how, how is that going to happen? And then there are folks who, for lots of different reasons, maybe they've had different support resources, faith experiences that makes that feel more doable. And so the reason I acknowledge that spectrum is to say that sometimes I think before we can love, we learn to respect, we learn to honor, I think is probably even the word there. Um, and, and so I, I think that part of what's so beautiful about this work is that as we begin to acknowledge the way our bodies have been created, if love feels too far away, beginning mm-hmm. to understand, you know, as I go back to like when I, that window of tolerance example, when we understand that our bodies are literally created to act in service of our safety, like that's, that is how we are wired. And for those of us who had experiences where trauma has become trapped in our body, There may be patterns there that have initially been about keeping us safe. Um, And and so beginning to, you know, first, you know, going again, that noticing is a huge part, like just noticing, like, why have I needed that? Mm -hmm. Why did I need, you know, for me using my own story, why did I need to white knuckle it? What was the life experience that taught me it was not okay to feel my feelings. It was not okay to tell people, no, I, that's too far for me. Like that's more than I can handle. Um, and, and so as I begin to honor and acknowledge, like, thank you. You allowed me to survive my childhood. You mm-hmm. allowed me, you know, in other situations, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a relationship or a system. You allowed me to get through that experience. And then we can, I think that's where love grows. Mm-hmm. That as we say, thank you so much. And now I have different resources. Yeah. That experience right. is over now. And mm-hmm. now we can do it differently. Bethy, why don't you talk about that in terms of Enneagram type? Uh, we, we talk about it some, but as a way for children to handle their world, mm-hmm. it has a pattern to it, and the Enneagram captures that, but it carries with it both blessing and burdens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I believe that we're born with our personality, um, that God has given us this great gift to uh, reflect him and his glory. Uh, But unfortunately, we're on the side of the fall. And so um, it's broken, you know, and it it doesn't um, manifest itself in the way that it was designed in the garden. And so we see, interpret and react to our circumstances through a particular lens. And as we're growing up, we have our own defensive mechanisms, our own thought patterns that um, 
you know, we think everyone else thinks this way, or everyone sees the world this way, or everyone would respond to trauma this way. Um, But that's not necessarily true. We also think, um, if other people saw that I'm hurting, they would have attuned to me Mm. in the way that I long for. But a parent or a caregiver may have been trying to attune to us, but that they're doing it the way they would want it. It didn't land on us well. Um, And so we can maybe even misinterpret uh, other people's, um, you know, attempts to care and not feeling like it was. So there's just so many things that um, we are perceiving or interpreting and we're reacting to from a very particular lens. And what can be so powerful about that is it can give a lot of understanding and grace for our own story. Because when we read or learn um, about how to understand ourselves, our story, our trauma, our pain, and then here's a path to grow, a lot of times we're hearing this information from a person from a particular perspective. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to do their best to help us. But again, that advice may be particular for their style um, and their bent. So it's helpful if we can understand how have I been created and designed? Um, what is the perspective that I bring to the world? How has that perspective been broken from the fall? And therefore, in that brokenness, how has how have I as a child, again, honoring how they tried to help us survive from the limited resources, the limited understanding, the limited nurturing that was given? How did my body, my mind and my heart try to navigate that the best it could with the perspective, with the insights that it had? But each child has a different lens. And so um, there's and I to talk about them being record players. What's funny, <laughs> um, we we used to talk about record players because Jeff and I grew up in the 80s. <laughs> and then there was this season where people didn't even know what record players were. Well, now the young generation... <laughs> loves record my daughter who's 20 has a record player i'm like oh that's so funny how it's coming back around anyway but yeah, it's but like she doesn't have the bg record player oh, well we'll have to get so that for her. that was epic rock i remember having one but we have these record players in our mind these false messages these false narratives that our particular personality is constantly saying to us that brings harm it feels real and it gets us off a healthier path but when we're a child we don't know that we think it's real. We think this is truth or we're interpreting other people's reactions to us in a particular way. And it lands on us in a particular way that can actually create more harm than what's there. And it's hard to have uh, true healing. So it is very important to understand your personality's perspective, how it perceived, interpreted and reacted so that you can honor it. You can respect it. You can Mm -hmm. thank it for doing the best that it could when it was four years old or eight years old, 13 or 22 years old, whatever your story was, how can we honor that? But then, like you said, say, thank you, but now I have new tools and I'm going to continue to grow and heal in a very particular way that God has called me into healing and restoring and renewing my mind. You know, this is helpful for me as a concept because there were years. So for 20 years, uh, I was serving in the local church as a pastor and, and typically in kind of that number two role, the overseeing adult ministries, executive pastor type role. And 
I started to recognize that there were certain moments in leading where I felt very young and very vulnerable. Uh, and I would get flooded. Uh, I'd get very scared about uh, coming under scrutiny, uh, being told I was doing something wrong, feeling like I was going to get caught for something that I may have known that I did or didn't know that I did, but just the fear of coming under an authority's gaze and started to identify how my role as a pastor was a reenactment of my role in my family of origin. And as a six. And as mm-hmm. a, and particularly experiencing it as a type six, mm-hmm. being the loyal and reliable one. Looking for like, a trusted authority. I, I will mm-hmm. take care of what nobody else is taking care of for the sake of the family. Mm-hmm. And if I were doing that wrong, then I would experience uh, shame in that regard. And so, but here, here's the amazing thing about it is that in life, I mean, there was a, a lot of sorrow and tragedy in my story and why I felt the need to step into that role. And as a kid, that was the only thing I knew to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I dove in. Well, as a pastor, then I would experience both the joy of having lived out that role for so long and the church would benefit from it. But at the same time, I'm also remembering the tragedy, the shame of what that role has meant for me and the pain that I bear with it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying I love that the tragedy of it, but I'm saying I, I honor who that little kid was. I can be now for myself what I wish a parent would have been as a child. And even as it relates to Beth and I, is that there are times that I am relating to her out of this smaller self or relating to my family out of this younger self, but I can treat that self with kindness and honor the burden that he bears uh, by simply naming Hey, this my story has impacted my relationship with you, and I ha- I can recognize it um, for what it was with honesty, with truth, to bring light to it, uh, so that it doesn't have to be an undue burden that we have to continue to share. Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to trauma, we we can't look for a quick fix. But man, I know in the Enneagram world, there's, there's all kinds of, so many types are reaching out to us. What are the best spiritual practices? What's the best thing that I can do to get this thing fixed? Cause I'm, <laughs> something's <laughs> not working, but man, we really want something to work. Yeah. Well, uh, how do we change our kind of consumer mindset in a way that allows us to embrace the deep and long work of healing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, this is such a great question. And, and even that's why I think the first chapter of Trisofter, um, I think I start with a story about how common it is. Like it's a story about a client who comes in who's basically like, so how long is this going to take? And, uh, and this is someone with like a pretty complex history of trauma and, and, and sure, you know, I, I think this is, 
um, I love that the Bible really speaks to um, the already, but not yet. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really think of this work as already, but not yet. And, and, and I think that's a helpful mindset because, you know, if we can shift from, I will be lovable when I'm finished, when I'm healed, Mm -hmm. when I'm perfect, if we can shift it to, I am beloved right now as I am Mm -hmm. in, in my messiness, in my not finishedness. I am beloved. Mm -hmm. And that is a profoundly important shift that I see folks begin to make. And it can take some time because understanding that we are valuable and loved right now is attachment work. It means that we are recognizing that, that we are inherently worthy of care. And if we've never experienced that, if your childhood, if your, you know, if your relationships, if your churches, if your systems have taught you, hey, when you produce something, when you're quiet, when you help someone, when you're special, when you're whatever, then you'll get some love, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we live in a consumerist culture. Uh, we, we, we value meritocracy. We, this is a cultural, like it's countercultural to value process and to value that the process is as helpful and matters as much as wherever it takes us. And so I think that's why I often say try softer is the work of my life. Mm-hmm. Partly it's for me and partly it's actually the model for folks yes. who might be listening, for folks who might be reading to say, listen, I've been doing this work <laughs> for 12 years right. and here I right. am still mm-hmm. imperfect, still yep. not finished. And I, it, it, that's okay. But you're still loved. Absolutely. Um, it, it's like what Dr. Douglas at seminary, you know, had said is. Oh, we're, we're trying to get into the room that we're already in. That's it. Like, yeah, we're so already the, the finished not, work of Christ has put us in a room of grace, restoration, reconciliation. Everything has been accomplished and secured for us in him. And yet we're trying to get into that room mm-hmm. by our own efforts, but we're already yeah. there. I mean, the thought came to mind as you were sharing, Andy, that I don't pers- do the work in order to be loved, but because I am loved, I can do the work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like our, our inherent value is what? allows us to risk, Mm -hmm. to risk growth, to risk messing up, (laughs) to risk trying, you know? And I think, so I, I think a lot of times this is a concept we may wrestle with our whole life. And I, Mm -hmm. and I don't say that like that there's not healing that's 
that's possible. Like, I mean, I can honestly say that sometimes as a trauma therapist, I get to literally see miracles. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do a, I, I practice a modality called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is EMDR for short. Um, and it's a, you know, evidence-based, uh, modality for, for trauma and mm-hmm. it's not a magic pill, but to practice with someone to, to really walk through someone through that protocol and see something that is profoundly disturbing Mm-hmm. become integrated into their brain and body over the course of a couple of sessions for me is like, that's a miracle. You know, that can right. change the trajectory of someone's life. And so we live in the both and like mm-hmm. that can happen and more mm-hmm. pain happens, more life mm-hmm. happens. Um, and so I think, this ability to embrace that process is, is this open posture, a soft posture, if you will, that allows us to say, like, what do we got today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what kind of life needs is going to be lived today, you know, and mm-hmm. what kind of work and what kind of, where do you want me to go, Lord, with this now? Yeah. And, and so I think this shift in posture allows us to change from here's your checklist to be lovable to you are so valuable and loved. And now let's become more of who you already are. So related to this consumer like thinking, hmm. it is there's something subtle about how we bring this relational style to our faith and asking God, communities, leaders to somehow be the instruments of our quick healing. Mm. But I was recently uh, reading in in a book and, and it says this about sometimes our approaches to religion. It says, we found religions that allowed us to reenact the shame and despair of our childhood. We took what religion had to offer and converted it into familiar methods of self-abuse and Mm self-condemnation. Oh, I thought, oh no. I, as a pastor and as what we'll call him Jeffrey, uh, Jeff's younger parts. That was uh, what my parents would call me when I was younger, Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. Um, and why I get irritated when anyone calls me Jeffrey now. <laughs> so, um, but I for so long really thought if I can just get my theology right, if I can just know enough about the Bible, if I can preach the right sermon and get the right certifications, if I can come up with the way to organize it, not only can I find healing and love, but I will provide healing and love for mm. everybody else. Mm. Now, that's not saying that Christianity itself promises that, but it's what my thinking in style of relating brought to it. Mm-hmm. How is it that in some ways has the church contributed to this kind of consumeristic thinking about, yeah, it, 
get these things right mm-hmm. and it will heal your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really important uh, question and, and just topic that you're touching on. And what it makes me think of this, I forget who said this quote, it's not me. Um, but the quote is, we repeat what we don't repair. That's a great line. And That'll stick. <laughs> it's, whew, it's one of those, it's, it's one of those therapy quotes that, and I, I can't remember whose it is. So please don't give me credit on that, but um, it's so important because our intentions don't necessarily change how we are showing up, how we're embodying our presence in the world. And so this is where compassion is helpful, but it's also like recognizing why we haven't changed requires compassion, (laughs) but recognizing that perhaps we might be repeating something harmful uh, requires humility. And I think all healing work requires awareness, compassion, and humility. And sometimes, you know, this is, I mean, you can find this on a macro level and you can find these on micro levels. You can look at individuals and as individuals, we repeat what we don't repair. And as systems and groups, we repeat what we don't repair. And information does not heal trauma. Lived experience, reparative experiences is what changes the actual relational lived experience is, is what changes. And so as I think about all that you're saying there, you know, I think the reality is, um, and I say this as someone who is a follower of Jesus, but I, I think that the church, I think there's a significant amount of trauma that hasn't been addressed in our, whether that's through families, whether that's through actual systems. And, you know, I think with all trauma work, the compassion is, is why have we needed, why have we not felt safe enough to address the trauma? And I think that's the gentleness we can bring to say, you know, just like in any work, um, if this is what's present, what is, what is going to allow us to compassionately bring awareness to Mm -hmm. how we're doing this in a way that's not ultimately true or helpful. And, and I think the one other thing I would add there is, you know, one of the things I talk about in Try Softer is this idea that um, of functional Gnosticism. And this is a term that I coined because, you know, back in, I don't know, I think it was like the 13th century, Gnosticism was, uh, you know, voted or said to be a heresy. And which I, which is good um, because essentially it was trying to separate the spirit from our bodies. But what's so interesting is that I think, especially in Western culture, without realizing it, we have begun to sort of practice a version of saying, over here, ideas, spirit, um, this is good. And our bodies and our emotions, those are bad. Those are weak. Mm -hmm. And, And that is such a Gnostic 
view yes. of personhood. And I really, yes. one of the things I so value about my faith is that Jesus is the incarnation. He is yes. God in flesh. It's not God going to come anyway. He could have just been mm-hmm. a spirit, but he chose to come in a body, you know, and that is for me as a survivor of trauma and as a trauma therapist, it literally brings tears to my eyes because that is what happens. Like when, as people heal, they re-inhabit their bodies. They Mm -hmm. learn to be with themselves. And so, you know, I definitely don't have any bows to tie on, um, this, you know, the, the bigger questions of church, but what I, what I know is that, um, there's a sense in which Jesus, which God is calling us to live, um, in the temple of our bodies, because that's what he modeled and that that is what makes us most like him. And so, you know, I believe the pathway to healing, whether individually societally in a church culturally will be through that path mm-hmm. because that's the only thing that allows a full integrated healing yes. to occur. Oh, well, thank you for all of that, Andy. I really appreciate it because it, it's even compassionate for, to extend the same compassion and honor to our church systems and uh, our faith as we would to ourselves, recognizing that there are certain limitations and blind spots um, that, you know, they're so, some of them are self-protective in nature because it does feel dangerous and means that we'd all have to be asking a different set of questions that maybe we're not individually ready to ask. Okay, so Andy, in your book, you say that we need to become engaged, attentive observers of our bodies, minds, and spirits so that we can give each of those parts what it actually needs to heal. And at YEC, we've developed a practice called AWARE. And AWARE is where we, A, awaken to ourselves and what's going on. W, we welcome what we're experiencing through our minds, our heart, and our body. And then we ask the Holy Spirit to bring clarity, to help us to see what's going on. Um, And then we receive our, we receive the good news of the gospel and what is happening and what he, how he transforms us Mm -hmm. uh, by being there with us and renewing us. And E is so that we can engage and experience Mm -hmm. the fullness of who we are in Christ. So for our listeners who struggle Uh, slowing down and being aware, what practical advice or first steps can you give them? Mm, Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, I love that practice. That's beautiful. And I think it sounds like it's really helpful. Um, But yeah, you're right that there's sometimes based off of our life experience, um, we might need different on ramps uh, to, to begin a practice. And so You know, one of the things that I love to share with people, and maybe some of your listeners have heard this before, um, but like, let's say you were wanting to engage your practice of aware, but you're noticing, 
gosh, I just can't get there, you know, like for whatever reason, like I can't slow my brain down enough or my body. I want to, to be able to turn my attention someplace, but my body feels too activated. One thing I really love to teach people is, is something called grounding. Um, mm. and there's lots of different ways to do grounding. Um, but the idea behind it is that we are using our five senses to mm -hmm. really bring us into that window of tolerance because that's when we're in our window is when we have access to all that we need to be aware to probably practice okay. aware. And so, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, you might consider doing is going outside if you can and really using, um, your different senses to, you know, you might notice, um, something you can see something you can hear. Um, it might be hard to do something you could taste, but maybe have something you could taste. Um, you, and, and as you really bring your attention to your senses, what you might notice is that a sense of settledness in your mm -hmm. nervous system. And it's from that place that you might be able to better engage, you know, an awareness practice. And mm -hmm. I just would want to add, I think for a lot of folks um, who've experienced trauma, that's really normal to yes. need to do some of those um, pre-steps where, um, where maybe awareness Im immediately going to awareness has actually feels a little intimidating or scary because for whatever reason in the past, that hasn't felt psychologically, emotionally, physically safe. And so I just really want to normalize that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also just to say, I use grounding like all the time, <laughs> um, especially as we go through the coronavirus and all the things right. that that's meant. Um, mm -hmm. I have noticed my body, you know, like I can tell when I'm starting to go into either hypo or hyper arousal and grounding is just a resource that helps us really come back to that mm -hmm. full integrated self. Wow, that's great. Well, then can you explain white knuckling 101 and how our listeners can recognize themselves doing it? And then when they can notice white knuckling, like you said that you were doing, you know, in life, um, and what is the first thing they can do to try softer? Mm, yeah. So white knuckling is sort of this phrase that I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but it's sort of a phrase that I've used, um, to like, it's, it's not a replacement for hard work, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think maybe when someone hears the phrase try softer, when I first heard it, it kind of irritated me a little bit because I was like, well, who's going to get everything done if I try softer, <laughs> um, but white knuckling is different than hard work in the sense that it really is where we're either beginning or totally going outside of our window of tolerance. So that might, you know, there's lots of different ways people might experience this, but some of the really common things are maybe you're beginning to notice that your, your heart rate is accelerating. Maybe you're noticing that you know, somebody, uh, one of your friends or your loved one, um, needs something. And even though you don't want to, you feel like you need to rush in and just like fix it. Um, it might be, um, 
skipping meals saying, Oh gosh, you know what? Like I'm really hungry, but, um, I I just don't have time for that. Um, Mm -hmm. it could be taking on more than what you really have capacity to do. And could it, could it also just speaking from a type nine perspective, (laughs) could it also be numbing out and pulling the sheets over your head? Would it look like that too? Like that's kind of like white knuckling it the opposite way, but just shutting out the world? Yes. And that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so physiologically, typically with white knuckling, um, and, and I'd be curious, we'll have to have a different conversation about this for nine sometime, but typically physiologically, we go into hyper arousal, which looks more like that fight or flight. And then we go into the, more of it, like, dissociative or even sort of depressive side. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say when I'm thinking of that from a nine's perspective, um, what will, I think white knuckling, what that would look like for us. And the reason why I brought that up is just yeah, because good. I think out of all nine types, we are qu- quicker to go to the hypo arousal, like yes. just no problem. We can go there. And so I was trying to kind of conceptualize what this means, but I think for the nine knowing myself, I'm trying harder to please. I'm trying harder to accommodate. I'm trying harder to read people and anticipate what will make them happy and coming through for it for them before they even know it. And it sounds very two-ish, but it's a very different way of doing it than a two. Um, It's how can I please people, make people happy so there is no conflict. And if I feel that my efforts have fallen short or I'm not good enough, or they're displeased, that's when I go to hypo and mm-hmm. just want to quit or disassociate or give up. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what we're... Yes, that absolutely is. And that is, um, that's absolutely like I, part of the, the white knuckling. And mm. from that trauma lens, from that trauma informed lens, part of what we try to do is to bring awareness a lot earlier, Like Mm -hmm. I sort of think of it, if I had, you know, if your listeners could see a picture of the window of tolerance, it's almost like you would see, um, you know, like the sort of like, there's like sort of like this, uh, range, like two lines. And it's like, as you go up into hyper arousal, um, it's almost like nines probably are in hyper arousal. And then they like do that dorsal dive. They like take a (laughs) dive quickly because, Mm -hmm. and this is what I think is beautiful about the Enneagram in the sense that for whatever reason, your physiology, your personality, your life story, your body has decided that is the best way to navigate yes. the potential threat or the right. threat that you're facing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, others like an eight might be going mm-hmm. way up into that, you know, hyper arousal, like let's fight it. And yeah, and they'll just keep going. It's like they're, they're climbing Mount there. Everest. Yeah, and they just keep keep going. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. so the trick with either one of these, mm-hmm. any type, is to notice our thresholds. Yeah. That sense of, and this is where it's going to be particular, both the person and like an individual and a type, where you're. It's where we have to begin to just even notice. Like, what is it like when I'm beginning to move outside of myself? Um, Mm -hmm. For me, I notice um, my body tightening up. 
Mm-hmm. I notice, uh, maybe I start to get a sensation in my throat. Um, and then, you know, as that, the, the more significantly we move outside of that window, um, our prefrontal cortex goes either partially or all the way offline. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why this is important is like, let's say, like, let's go back to the Enneagram eight and who's yeah. like maybe really into like a fight response. Mm-hmm. They can get to the point where they are, are living so much from their lower brain that mm-hmm. the, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part that can sort of problem solve and say, Hey, is this a good decision for long-term? Like in this relationship, does this, is this in line with who I am? Like that part of your brain, it is turned off. It is no longer accessible. And the same would be true with any number and concurrent with how far we're going outside of the window. Right. So as we get to know our body our body Mm -hmm. responses and what it's like when we go outside of the window, what we're trying to do is sort of bring that awareness, but then have tools to bring us back to Mm -hmm. ourselves. Um, And so, you know, for example, that grounding exercise that I just was talking about is a, is a great one. Like if you're like, um, you know, for me, I've got young kiddos homeschooling, in the middle of COVID, like (laughs) many times where I'm like, I love you. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to go outside for two minutes. Mommy will be right back because Mm -hmm. my nervous system is like, I can't think like I am no longer in a capacity to think um, and respond well. And, you know, some other things like grounding is a, is a foundational one, but I think in general, as we get grounded, self-compassion can be a Mm -hmm. really important tool because a lot of times what happens, and I think this can probably express itself differently depending on type, but um, we will then shame ourselves for how we responded, you know? And so I think that will compound and keep us stuck. You know, I think about for, you know, that example you're talking about with the nine, um, I can think about how easy it would be for someone who is feeling super, you know, they're just totally past their capacity, um, because they're trying to keep everybody happy. They're in their bed with the blanket over their head and how easily the narrative would come up of, uh, if, you know, if I would have just tried a little harder or here I am again. Yeah. Well, and Jeff and I have, you know, so we've worked on this, you know, over time. And I remember one, one day specifically, I was super busy just in general that season and that day was busy and I was rushing from like appointment to appointment and this is pre COVID and we had a a meeting with someone at Panera and Jeff was already there and I arrived, you know, a little bit late, but I'm kind of rushing in and sitting down and the conversation was wonderful, but it was very overwhelming, new information, big business, um, opportunities or things that we could be doing. And, um, he kind of looked at me and he could tell that my eyes were getting glass, you know, glassy. And I was able to recognize my body was shutting down. This was great news. This was wonderful conversation, but my body was like, I can't 
continue. I'm shutting mm-hmm. you down. But in the past, and, and, and there's still times I do this, but I would put myself down. Why can't I stay engaged? Why can't I like, you know, his, his mind is going a thousand miles an hour and he can stay engaged. Why am I not? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, are, are you shutting, you know, are you shutting down? And it was very compassionate. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I, I can feel my body shutting me down. And I recognized I had gone past what the capacity of my body could handle over the course of time. And it was a meeting though. It was engaging. I didn't necessarily have to be there. So Jeff said, Hey, I really think you go ahead and go home. I'm going to stay here. We'll have this great conversation. I'll fill you in. And at first I felt shame Mm. and like, why can't I just, you know, but I realized knowing my type, knowing what was going on, that this was a signal that I, I needed to take care of myself. I needed to go home and recharge. And it was just really great that Jeff also understood that, that we had that vocabulary to enter that space, feeling the guilt, feeling the shame, but then bringing back what's true and then allowing the healing. And of course, it's not every day that happens, but that's such a great, you know, picture of how to walk, kind of become aware, walk through these sensations, understand what's going on, and then care for yourself with gentleness. Um, So everything you're saying is like, yes, that's so true. So I was trying to white knuckle it. My body said, no, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, boom, boom. Yes, that that feeling of, you know, really, as we sort of, and I know you all use this language, too. It's like, we're befriending. Yes. We're saying, oh, I see that you have a purpose here. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean like, oh man, like I just want to be in dissociation. I don't, I'm going to be in dissociation all the time. The paradox right. of this work, and, and it's so cool because the, the neurobiology of this is concurrent with this that um, self compassion and mm-hmm. softening paradoxically actually makes us more resilient. And I think about that example you just gave that, gosh, how different would that be if you're, if you're stuck in a shame uh, spiral, how Mm -hmm. much longer that takes to come out of that versus being able to receive that support from Jeff and say, you know what, you're right. Thank you so much for caring about me and caring for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to receive that support and then Mm -hmm. sort of letting your body come back to homeostasis. And then it just is what it is. You know, it just, that's a thing that happened today and good information, you know? And as when I'm coaching with people, because I did clearly want people to recognize that is like once in a blue moon that it really kind of is the full circle. But when I'm coaching people, I want them to remember moments like that mm-hmm. as this, you know, put like putting a stake in the ground, a flag, like a mm-hmm. marker, like, yes, I've experienced that. I can see where God is taking me. And then to be coming aware and welcoming, asking for help from the Holy Spirit, receiving the good news of the gospel, and then getting engaged and experiencing the gospel to its fullness, knowing that the end game Christ is renewing, restoring, and Mm. uh, bringing about all things for our benefit and His glory. And that, when we have that vision, Mm. it helps us to be in the present moment with great hope, even when there's tragedy or even when there's despair or grief that we have the great hope that we have in him. So Andy, um, 
our listeners, because this has been such a rich conversation. Oh my gosh, I have learned so much and I know our listeners have too, but this is just the tip of the iceberg and they're going to want to know more of how to try softer, how to grow and all the things that we've talked about. So where can they find you and what resources can they access and utilize um, to help incorporate all that we're talking about? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, well, you can find me at my website, ondicolber.com. Um, and then of course, as we've talked about, I have my book, Try Softer, and there are links there, but pretty much all the major retailers, you can find it there. And then, um, I have, I'm so excited. I have something called the Try Softer Guided Journey coming mm. out. Um, it's actually available for pre-order right now. And mm-hmm. essentially it takes same concepts and it kind of goes even deeper. Uh, the way we've kind of been framing it is, you know, TriSofter has lots of practices and, and plenty to chew on there. Um, but it's almost the, the perspective that we tried to take for the guided journey is, you know, if you were in therapy with me, what would yes. we do? How would we unpack this even more? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what we tried to do in the guided journey. So I would love for folks to check that out. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram at Andy Colber, and you can find me on Twitter at Andy Colber. And also I'm going to be, you can find in the show notes cause I don't have the link right now, but I have, um, Beth and Jeff are going to be, uh, providing the link for some self-compassion, uh, practices. And these are yes. sort of adapted from the Trace after book, but it's just, you know, I think it's one of those things that no matter the healing work you're doing. Um, and I think it, whether it's the Enneagram, which I love and I'm so grateful for, um, and just therapeutic work in general, self-compassion is such a vital piece to being able to really allow this information to integrate. Um, and so that, that's something I wanted to offer to your listeners because I just find it to be really a transformative uh, Mm -hmm. thing to have. Well, thank you for those resources. Um, what was the, um, enter the first one, the new thing that's just coming out? What was that called again? Uh, The Try Softer Guided Journey. Okay. I'm getting that because <laughs> that, and, and especially, you know, when I do my coaching, you know, we have like, you know, our books, but then we've developed courses that go along with the books to take it deeper. And I know how much real insight is in those courses that just takes people to really where they're wanting to go. So that's why I'm going to get <laughs> exactly what you said, because I know, oh man, we've just touched the iceberg, you know, top of the iceberg. And you have so much more information that will help us to understand what's going on. And then how to help ourselves to grow right where we're at. So thank you so much, Andy, for uh, being with us, sharing your story and um, also just the helpful advice that you've learned along the way. Uh, It's such a blessing to us. So thank you so, so much. Mm. Well, it is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Andy is such a wise voice on this topic, and it was a privilege to talk to her today. Well, next week, we're going to have a conversation with Holly Hayes, a sex trafficking survivor who now offers sanctuary to women in need of rescue and how she uses what she has learned about the Enneagram to minister to these women. As you dive deeper into your study of the Enneagram, always remember that Enneagram reveals our need for Jesus, not our need to work harder. It's the gospel that transforms us and is the gospel that brings healing to our trauma.